Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Debbie Sorensen. Today on New Books in Psychology, I have the great privilege of speaking with Dr. Suzanne Corkin about her book, Permanent Present Tense, The Unforgettable Life of the Amnesic Patient, H.M. Dr. Corkin is a professor emeritus of neuroscience at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She did decades of research on memory with Henry Mollison, better known by his initials, H.M., in the decades between the start of his amnesia with an operation in 1953 and his death in 2008, Henry was the most famous and comprehensively studied patient in neuroscience. Henry's great personal tragedy, his inability to encode memories into long-term storage, was science's enormous gain. Decades of research on Henry's cognitive abilities made a lasting contribution to neuroscience, and work on his postmortem brain is continuing to this day and beyond. Perhaps no one knew the case of H.M. better than Dr. Suzanne Corkin, and she's here today to tell us more about him. Hello, Dr. Corkin. Hello, Debbie. Hello. It's a great honor for me to interview you today about your really fascinating book about the life of the famous case of H.M. Um, So to start the interview, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, I was born in Hartford, Connecticut, and I grew up in the Hartford area. I attended a small public elementary school in my neighborhood through the sixth grade, and then from grades 7 through 12, I went to a private school for girls, the Oxford School. After high school, I entered Smith College as a pre-med student, but my brief career in medicine ended after I took first-year chemistry and hated it. Uh, I was good at math, though, and I thought I could major in either economics or psychology because both were quantitative disciplines. I eventually decided that I was more attracted to psychology because, like medicine, it was a career that that would allow me to help people. In my senior year at Smith, I applied to master's programs in clinical psychology and chose the applied psychology program at McGill University because it included extensive experience working with patients in local hospitals. But my career as a clinical psychologist turned out to be just as short-lived as my career as a physician. Once I was exposed to the daily work of clinical psychologists, I realized I didn't want to spend my life giving standardized tests and writing reports, which were a significant part of working with patients. Luckily, another career path opened up at McGill. Every Friday afternoon, I'd attend our departmental colloquium where faculty members would present their research. I was able to meet distinguished professors whose work inspired me, particularly Donald Hebb, an eminent physiological psychologist who towered like a god over the department. From these weekly colloquia, I got a good taste of real science, and I was seduced by the idea of becoming a researcher. Science was a way to probe uncertainties about the brain and its diseases and uncover new information. I learned to appreciate rigorous experimentation and the knowledge that resulted from it. In my second year of graduate school, I had to write a research paper, and a cluster of papers about amnesia caught my eye. <clears throat> Wilder Penfield and Brenda Milner authored two of the papers, which described their amnesic patients, FC and PB. The first author of the third paper was a familiar name, William Beecher Scoville. The reason his name was familiar was because he lived across the street from me in West Hartford, and his daughter and I were in the same class in school from second grade through college. I knew him as the man who drove sports cars and took me on ski trips when I was a child. H.M.'s case was a side of his professional career I knew nothing about. I also realized that the paper's other author was Milner, a McGill faculty member. 
I devoured the three journal articles and chose to write my paper about the cases they described. In the process of writing the paper, my personal curiosity turned to a scientific one. I knew that these three cases were important and that scientists were just beginning to learn from them. It seemed like they could provide a direction for my own budding career as a researcher. So that spring, I called Milner and asked whether I could talk with her about joining her lab at the Montreal Neurological Institute. I embarked on my thesis research there in the summer of 61, and I received my Ph.D. in 64. <clears throat> the year after I arrived at Milner's lab, she arranged for Henry to visit us for extensive testing. Although he was one of many subjects, many patients, uh, who occupied my time, I knew that he was special because his amnesia was so severe. Milner and the rest of us had prepared an extensive series of tests for him designed to measure various aspects of his memory and other cognitive functions. The results of our studies revealed the scope and limits of his amnesia and foreshadowed new ways of probing how memory is organized in the human brain. <clears throat> in addition to Hebb and Milner, my mentors at McGill included neurophysiologists Herbert Jasper and Peter Gluer, several surgeons, um, including Wilder Penfield, Theodore Rasmussen, and William Fidel, and in the psychology department, Peter Milner. I moved to MIT in 1964 and have been there ever since. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, you may be wondering where my work fits, in, it fits into the burgeoning field of neuroscience. Neuroscience is a giant tent that covers diverse disciplines, all intended to advance knowledge about the brain and the nervous system. Neuroscientists study brain structure and brain function at different levels of analysis, ranging from cognitive neuroscience at the highest level to cellular molecular neuroscience at the lowest. My area of research is called systems neuroscience. Our mission is to describe the specialization of distinct circuits of interconnected neurons that give rise to specific kinds of behavior, such as declarative and non-declarative memory. Studying Henry gave us the extraordinary opportunity to propel the science of human memory forward by examining processes distributed throughout the brain. How did you end up writing this, this particular book? From time to time, I was invited to give talks about memory at HM. People in the audience always had a plethora of questions about Henry's, Henry's memory capacities and also about his everyday life. The Q&A often spilled over into the hallway after the talk, and, and I also received follow-up letters and emails with further questions. So the immense interest in Henry's case compelled me to write pr permanent present tense. I was the obvious person to write this book because I had studied him for decades, and I was familiar with the area where he lived for his entire life. Well, actually, that would be maybe a great place to start in terms of the content of the book. Could you tell us a little bit about Henry's early life before the operation and the events leading up to the operation? Oh, sure. Um, uh, Henry grew up in, in the Hartford area. Uh, he was born in 1926. Uh, his birth was normal. He weighed eight pounds at birth. And uh, he, after uh, he was born, he went with his parents to live in a, in a house in Manchester, Connecticut. And he attended a private kindergarten in East Hartford and then uh, went up the academic ladder from elementary school to junior high school to high school. Uh, he first uh, entered Willimantic High School, uh, but he dropped out after a short time because the other boys teased him about his epilepsy. So he stayed out of high school for a couple of years, and then he uh, entered East Hartford High School with the class of 1947. His uh, nickname was Hank. Uh, he uh, chose the practical course uh, as opposed to the business or the college course. He was very technically minded. Uh, I had the <clears throat> I had the good fortune of talking with some of his classmates 
when I was writing the book. And they all said exactly the same thing about him. They said he was quiet, kept to himself, and was very polite. Uh, after, but during these years, during the high school years, uh, his seizures, uh, which had begun, what, let me just back up and tell you when his seizures began. He started having seizures when he was 10 years old. These were just petit mal seizures, uh, or also called absence seizures, where he would just appear to be daydreaming for, say, 30 seconds or so, and he might fiddle with the sleeve of his shirt or something like that. And then after the seizure ended, he would just sort of come back and resume doing whatever he had been doing before he had the seizure. Then on his 15th birthday, he had his first generalized convulsion, his first grand mal seizure. And these uh, <clears throat> these uh, increased in frequency over the years, including through the time he was in high school. Uh, he took very high doses of anticonvulsant medications, but, but these didn't seem to quell his seizures. They just didn't do the trick. So um, in the 1950s, a neurosurgeon in Hartford, William Beecher Scoville, uh, suggested to Henry and his family that he perform a, an experimental brain operation that he hoped would stop the seizures. Uh, he had this operation in August of 1953. Uh, you know, the family, Henry and his parents, going into this with, with hope that, that their life would be changed for the better. And that he, you know, they would then be able to lead a normal life as a family. And of course, as we know, their life did change drastically, but not the way they expected, uh, because he was saddled for the rest of his life with a, uh, an inability to establish new long-term memories. He had a profound memory impairment. Well, I thought the history of psychosurgery, um, as it's called, was really fascinating. And at that time, it seems like that was a pretty, even though that particular experiment was um, kind of a, you know, or that particular surgery was experimental, there were a lot of these types of surgeries happening. Could you tell us just a little bit about what was going on um, at that the time? The most prevalent uh, kind of psychosurgery was directed at the frontal lobes. People know this as frontal lobotomy. These operations um, disconnected various connections, uh, various white matter pathways uh, underneath the frontal lobes, which doctors then believed uh, would would restore the patients to normal behavior and allow them to leave mental hospitals and go home again. Uh, in fact, the results were very, very mixed. Some of the results were a disaster. People died or they were left very handicapped for the rest of their lives. Some people were unchanged, and a few patients actually got better. Scoville did frontal lobotomies in, psych in psychotic patients for a period of time, and he has publications on these cases. But he decided that this was not uh, the therapeutic effect wasn't what he was looking for. So then he moved back to the temporal lobes. The temporal lobes are just behind the frontal lobes. <clears throat> inside your temples. And so that's where he focused uh, his next set of experimental procedures. He did uh, varying, uh, uh, um, varying uh, aspects of the procedure he did with Henry in a large population of uh, schizophrenic women who were in mental state mental hospitals in, in Connecticut. <clears throat> Uh, of, of these cases of psychotic women, there were two who had the operation for a psychosis, but as it turns out, they also had epilepsy. And Scoville, or the physicians taking care of these patients, noted that this, the seizures in these two women were palliated some, somewhat by the operation. There are no details of this, just that they, you know, they, they seem, their epilepsy wasn't as bad as it was before the operation. So this gave, you know, sort of a, a, a mini rationale for doing a similar operation on Henry. He's the only patient who had the operation for epilepsy. And it did, in fact, reduce the frequency of his seizures, you know, but, but at an unacceptable cost. Yeah, his science's gain was Henry's personal tragedy. Could you tell a little bit about um, what 
first of all, how it, how the surgery actually the impact it had on his brain, like what parts of his brain were, were destroyed oh, in the sure. procedure and then also how, what it was like for him to be in that state. Yes. So, um, the uh, the operation was done under a local anesthesia because uh, the brain doesn't feel pain. So the surgeon first made two two holes in Henry's skull. Uh, these were an inch and a half in diameter, uh, about five inches apart, just a little bit above his eyebrows. And he operated on one side at a time. First, he uh, went into one side with uh, a brain spatula or a retractor and lifted up the frontal lobe on that side so that he could then have a, a, a clear view and an entrance into the temporal lobes. So he saw the tip of the temporal lobes, the a tip of the temporal lobe on the side where he was operating. Before he did any removal, they did EEG recordings with electrodes placed on the surface of the medial temporal lobes and also some depth electrodes into electrodes placed into the brain. The reason they did this was to see whether they could localize an epileptic focus, a, a spot where the seizures were starting. If they had been able to do that, they could have removed that spot and nothing else. But as it turned out, they, they never found an epileptic focus on either side. So Scoville went ahead and did what he called a frankly experimental operation. He removed uh, medial temporal lobe structures these are structures in the inner part of the temporal lobe, not the lateral temporal neocortex, the inner part of the temporal lobe. And this included uh, the uncle amygdala, the head of the, I mean, sort of the uncus, the uncle hippocampus, uh, which is the head of the hippocampus. And then he removed uh, the entorhinal cortex and the anterior half, roughly, of the hippocampus and uh, some cortex around the hippocampus, which is called perirhinal cortex and parahippocampal cortex. And he did that on both sides. So after the operation, you know, as soon as Henry recovered from the surgery, from the uh, just the, the impact of the surgery, which was a couple of days, it was clear that he didn't, for all practical purposes, remember nothing. He didn't remember the hospital staff who came to take care of him. He didn't remember where the bathroom was. He didn't remember anything that had happened. And so, uh, you know, he spent the rest of his life in in this situation of um, not being able to lay down any new memories. Now, uh, so what was he like? What was he like? He was a really gentle person. Some people describe him as a gentle soul. <clears throat> he was intelligent, friendly, and he was altruistic. And uh, as I told you, his friends described him as quiet, keeping to himself, and very polite. As a research participant, he was really exceptional. Uh, when I asked him about how he felt about doing so many tests, he'd say, whatever I can do to help others. He was truly mm -hmm. altruistic. And he was also a gentleman. Um, it was it was amusing and touching. Um, we used to he used to come to MIT to our clinical research center for uh, weeks up to a week or or more of testing. And sometimes we would have to walk down the street from the clinical research center to the psychology department where there was uh, where other uh, testing would take place. And so when we walked down the sidewalk, he always walked on the outside, of course, and he cupped my right elbow uh, with his hand and sort of guided me down the street so that nothing bad would happen to me on the way. I assume this is the way he used to walk with his mother, and this just, you know, carried over to me. So he was a, a very kindly, genial, sociable person. He, he had a very good sense of humor. He was conversational. He didn't initiate conversations, but once you started talking with him, uh, he would just keep going. He loved to talk. He, he enjoyed interacting socially. You say in the book that he's, in, this, in a lot of ways, he's the gold standard as a, a kind of a research subject because he was so willing and it was such a profound case of amnesia. And, I mean, I just 
can't emphasize enough how, you know, decades of research and how well known his case is and how much he, you know, through his tragedy contributed to science and to what we know about memory systems in the brain. Yes. Um, well, he, he was yeah. the gold standard because his amnesia was so severe, but also because his amnesia was very pure. So what do I mean by that? I mean that his intellect was preserved. His his IQ throughout the t- years we were testing him uh, until the very end uh, was above average. He had an above average IQ. And his lexical and semantic processing was normal. And his perceptual abilities were normal. Um, so, you know, everything about him was great, except for his horrible memory. Now, the, he did make uh, many scientific contributions. Um, I, I will tell you about the three major ones. <clears throat> but as that would be great. Said, I, I imagine it's, it's hard to summarize all these decades of research into, you know, a, a brief interview. But, yeah, that would be great. As you said, um, his dedication to research brought about an epiphany in the science of memory. His case launched the modern era of memory research, and we could highlight three major scientific contributions. First of all, he was living proof that you can be an intelligent person and still have a horrible memory. Uh, His IQ was consistently above average, and this tells us that memory is processed by specialized brain circuits. Memory is compartmentalized. The second uh, big contribution is he showed us that the ability to form new memories is localized to a specific part of the brain, the inner part of the temporal lobes. Before Henry, we didn't understand that the hippocampus and the surrounding cortex are essential for the establishment of long-term memory. So he made that association. And the third contribution was the discovery that there are different kinds of memory with different addresses in the brain. One thing we learned is that amnesia actually spares some kind of memory. Brenda Milner provided the first evidence of this dissociation in 1962 when she showed that Henry was able to learn a motor skill and remember it over three days of testing. To He could remember the procedure, the how to do it, but he had no declarative knowledge, no conscious recollection of having done the test before or the apparatus or Milner or the testing room or anything else uh, about the testing experience. And since then, uh, thousands of researchers have fleshed out this idea of multiple memory circuits. So in terms of, if you'd like me to elaborate about what's spared, um, because of his amnesia, or what's spared and what isn't spared, he could, uh, because of his amnesia, he couldn't remember his day-to-day experiences or learn new facts, like vocabulary words. But we showed in the laboratory that he could learn new motor skills. And this kind of learning was evident in his everyday life. Um, a good example is the fact that he learned how to use a walking frame uh, when he was profoundly amnesic. So because uh, he took an anti-epilepsy drug called Dilantin for many years, he uh, developed several side effects of Dilantin. One is that his cerebellum uh, atrophied, which affected his, his balance and coordination. Another one is that he got osteoporosis, so he had many fractures. And because uh, of his falls, um, he was given a walking frame to use. Now, if you've never used one of these, you might think it's easy. You know, you just grab it and walk. But it isn't that easy. You have to learn certain motor skills. For example, if you're sitting in a chair or a wheelchair, you have to learn how to get up from the chair to the walker without falling down. Then once you're in the walker, you you need to learn how to perambulate down the hall. When you get to your destination, you then have to transfer from the walker down into a chair. And so, you know, he learned all of these. He learned these motor skills. He learned how to do it. He had uh, no really conscious recollection of why he needed to use the walker. He didn't say, I took Dilantin for a long time in big doses, and so I have osteoporosis and I fall and fracture 
fracture my bones, and to prevent that, I'm using a walker. He did not have that declarative knowledge at all. When I asked him why he used the walker, he said, so I won't fall down. Full stop. I mean, he used his intellect and gave an obvious answer, but not the real answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of Henry, we, we know that consciously remembering facts and events depend, like, you know, what you had for dinner last night or what amniocentesis means. This depends on areas that were removed from his brain in the medial temporal lobe. In contrast, this non-conscious learning, like motor skill learning and conditioning, depends on other circuits in the brain that remained intact in Henry's brain. These brain areas are outside the hippocampal region and do not depend on declarative memory conscious recollection. Could you talk a little bit about, um, because I think people often don't really understand. In fact, I, in my work as a clinical psychologist, I have people misuse this all the time. And I heard someone yesterday say, um, who I was interviewing, say, well, my short-term memory is terrible. I think people often misunderstand, they don't understand the difference between short-term and long-term memory. Could you talk a little bit about that and what exactly was impaired with with Henry? Let me tell you what short-term memory is. Short-term memory is what is in the right now. It's what's on your radar, radar screen is this very second. It's, it's, it's not what happened <clears throat> just before, and it's not hap- what happens just after. The duration of short-term memory is actually defined by psychologists. Psychologists have been working on this since Henry James in the, in the late 19th century. Somehow what psychologists know hasn't transferred over to neurologists, uh, to physicians in general, and to the general public. But the duration of short-term memory is roughly 30 seconds because after that time, uh, if, if you don't have long-term memory to fall back on, as Henry didn't, then you forget it. If you hear if you uh, hear. If you're given uh, a, a, some, say, three letters, STV or something like that, and you have to count backwards uh, from a number like 586, count backwards by threes, the counting backwards distracts you. And at the end of that, if you're asked to say what the three letters were, STV, um, if you're amnesic, you can only do this after a delay of, say, you know, maybe about 20 seconds, something like that. And other tasks show that the duration of short-term memory, what you can hold online, is only about 30 seconds. So anything from then on is long-term memory. So if I, uh, you know, asked you now, after I've been talking, what those three letters were, STV, you're not dredging this information, you're dredging this up from your long-term memory. You've already put it into storage, and you have to go. It's something that has left your consciousness, and you have to go and recall it or dredge it up or fish it up. And he was unable to do that, to encode. His short-term memory was more or less intact. It was the ability to... His short-term memory was intact. So if I said to him, Henry, um, I really like white petunias. Tell me what I just said. He could say, you just said you really like white petunias. So if it was in his immediate memory, he could repeat it. What he couldn't do was to consolidate and store this information. And that's because you need the hippocampus to do that job. And he simply didn't have it. And in fact, he knew you quite well. And in some ways, as you read in the book, he, over the decades that you knew him, he had some sense of familiarity with you. Um, and yet every single time you talked to him, him, he was unable to remember, explicitly remember having met you in the past. I'm wondering what, what was that like for you to know someone so very well? And yet, um, he's unable to remember you. Oh, well, I mean, it wasn't a problem. It was, it was quite nice, actually. Um, he never really knew who I was. But beginning in about the 1980s, he'd say that he knew me from high school. 
so whenever I went into his room and said, hi, Henry, you know, he didn't look up at me and say, oh, who is this stranger? It was like, here's my friend from high school. And that was a great advantage. Now, why did he think that? Well, over the years, he built up a sense of familiarity for my name and for my face. So he heard Suzanne Corkin, Suzanne Corkin, Suzanne, over and over again. And he saw my face over and over again on many occasions. And as a result of this constant exposure, this constant repetition, he believed that he knew me. And this feeling likely became stronger as time went on. So when I first met him in 1962, uh, when, it, when I was at the neuro, he didn't say that he knew me from high school. But roughly 20 years later, he started saying that he recognized me. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't mm-hmm. the only person he claimed he knew from high school. At his nursing home, there was at least one nurse whom he said he knew from the same years. Um, but, you know, this wasn't a problem for me at all. It was, it was quite nice. And actually, he, he, um, he created a special name for me. When I asked him what I do, he said, Doctress, D-O-C-T-R-E-S-S. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, just one of many examples of his kind of quirky, you know, sense of humor and his unique way of speaking. He's just really fascinating guy. Henry smiled a lot, and he had a keen sense of humor. Um, we can get sort of a glimpse of the man behind the initials and a lot the life behind the data from a few memorable, memorable anecdotes that I would love to share with you. In uh, in 1984, uh, Harvey Sagar, a postdoc in my lab, was testing Henry at the Clinical Research Center, and they walked out of the testing room together, and the door slammed, and Harvey said, oh, I, I think I've left my keys inside. And Henry said, well, at least you'll know where to find them. And then in a, in a couple of years later, um, Jenny Ogden, a neuropsychologist from New Zealand, was a postdoc in the lab, and she told Henry that she'd leave him alone for a while, and when she returned, she'd ask him to guess how long she'd been gone. So she left the room at 2.05, she returned at 2.17, and Henry immediately said, 12 minutes, got you there. Now, of course, she was in shock when she heard this, until she noticed that there was a big clock on the wall in the room. And what he had done was to engage his immediate memory. He either visually looked at the oh, at the five five minute after on in the clock and kept that spatial location in mind, or said to himself over and over again, two o five, two o five, or five of two, five of two. I don't know how he did it, but somehow he rehearsed two o five so that when she came back and he saw that it was two seventeen, he did a quick subtraction and got twelve. And so this is a very good example of how rehearsal can keep information alive in your short-term memory. So you can, you can keep refreshing it and keep it right in, in the immediate present um, by doing what the kind of thing that Henry did. Mm-hmm. Then another time, uh, he was talking with a student who had worked with him a lot, and, he, and Henry summed up his testing experiences this way. He said, it's a funny thing. You just live and learn. I'm living and you're learning. Mm-hmm. Um, another one from 2002, uh, Sarah Steinberg went to test him at the nursing home, and she went in first thing in the morning and, and said, Oh, good morning, Henry. Um, did you sleep well last night? And he said, I didn't stay awake to find out. <laughs> another time, um, I said to him, Henry, you're the puzzle king of the world. And the reason I said that uh, is because his favorite pastime was doing crossword puzzles, and he did them constantly and always had a crossword puzzle book uh, right at at his side. So when I said to him, you're the puzzle king of the world, he replied, I'm puzzling. (laughs) He's very clever. Yes, I mean, there are others. He just would come up with these little quips, you know, almost like a stand-up comedian. And they would, you know, he didn't obviously plan these ahead or anything because he wouldn't have remembered them. Um, but he, you know, he just, he was, he engaged his intellect intellect, mm-hmm. and, um, mm-hmm. you know, made, made light of situations. 
Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing that, uh, you know, he was in that state for so long and so, um, you know, agreeable and funny. And, um, you know, another, I think, another uh, area of memory that people sometimes don't really understand with amnesia is this idea of retrograde amnesia. I think when people hear the word amnesia, they think of forgetting your entire past kind of thing. Um, But in fact, this type is probably more common um, with people who have some sort of brain injury or whatnot. Um, What in the case, in Henry's case, what was he able to remember from events from his life prior to the operation? That's a good question. Um, He had rich, excuse me, rich mental representations covering the period from his birth, 1926, up to August 53, the date of his brain operation. He knew he was born, excuse me, he knew he was born in Manchester, Connecticut, that his father's family came from Thibodeau, Louisiana, and that his mother's family came from Ireland. He could talk about the towns in Hartford, in the Hartford area where he lived before his operation, and about specific neighbors. He knew the schools he attended and some of his classmates' names. In conversation, he mentioned what he did for fun, like roller skating, ice skating, banjo lessons, target practice. Overall, in spite of his epilepsy, he could remember the well-rounded life he experienced before his operation. The quality of Henry's preoperative memories, however, was severely compromised in the following way. He lacked episodic autobiographical memories, meaning that he could not recall anything that happened at a specific time and place. He could not recall a unique event, with two notable exceptions, which I can tell you about in a minute. But what he did retain was the gist of his previous experiences. For example, he could describe the landscape along the Mohawk Trail, which was a scenic drive in Massachusetts that the Mollisons enjoyed as a family. What he could not do was to recount a specific event that happened on one particular day. He did not say, for example, I remember the day when it started to rain and we had a flat tire. A nice man stopped to help us change the tire, and we were very grateful to him. So the fact that, that he could not retrieve any autobiographical memories uh, tells us that we need our hippocampus to do this, to retrieve autobiographical episodes. Now, a good way to describe his operation, uh, his, his memory for the years after his operation, is to say that it was destroyed. But he did have selective insights and fragments of information about his situation. He had a sense of identity. Uh, He was aware from the years before his operation that he had epilepsy, and he knew he had had an operation on his head. That's the way he phrased it. He also had a feeling that the procedure had been tried on only a few people before him and that during his operation, something had not gone quite right. He didn't know what. Above all, he knew that he did not remember things. He had insight, and he frequently said, I don't remember if I asked him, you know, do you remember what you had for lunch today? He, he didn't ham and haw or make up answers. He just, you know, matter-of-factly said, I don't remember. Because he could not record new information, his body image was outdated. He described himself as thin but heavy and was unaware that he had gray hair. This was on one occasion when I interviewed him. And he always underestimated his his age by quite a few years, and for a long time I was unaware that his parents had died. Now, when we asked him how old he was, he never said 27, which is how old he was when he had the operation. So over the years, you know, in, in his mind, he did get older, but he was never as old as, as his current age. <clears throat> now, in terms of... Uh, uh, looking into the future, uh, Henry couldn't do this. He, he was at a loss. He could not construct an agenda. He often stated to us and to people in the nursing home that he wanted to be a brain surgeon but could not because he wore glasses. And he had three um, reasons 
why glasses might be an impediment. One was that they might just be dirty and have specks of stuff on them so he couldn't see properly. Another was that the nurse, in wiping his brow, might dislodge his glasses and impair his vision. And the third one was that blood might spatter up in his glasses so he couldn't see properly. And he, he was worried about that because he thought, well, you know, if I can't see properly, I might... Uh, make a wrong move and harm the patient, make make a move in the brain that, that injured the person in one way or another. He had various examples of the kinds of bad things that could happen uh, during surgery if, if he uh, did something wrong. But that said, he did not have a plan B or a plan C or a plan D. In high school, he had, as I said, he had taken the practical course, and he had, sell, had sold, held several different jobs before his operation, um, like uh, repairing electric motors and working on the assembly line at a, a typewriter factory. But he did not have future plans. So, I mean, he could have said, well, maybe I'll go back to work as a motor winder, or maybe I'll go back to work on the typewriter assembly line. But he never did that. When I asked him what he would do tomorrow, he said, whatever is beneficial, full stop. Mm -hmm. He could not create a future and was never able to chase his dreams because he didn't have any. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the fact that he talked repeatedly over the years about this idea of being a brain surgeon but not wanting to harm anyone. I mean, that is really interesting. It is interesting. Um, of course, he was. He saw uh, Dr. Scoville for years before he had the operation, so he was familiar with the discipline of neurosurgery. Uh, Scoville was in a you know group practice of neurosurgeons, and I'm sure that Henry was sometimes seen by by junior colleagues in neurosurgery. So, you know, he, he was sort of immersed in the neurosurgery community. Um, and uh, I, I believe, uh, my guess is that Scoville was straightforward with him before the operation and said, you know, I don't know if this is going to stop your seizures. Um, and he may have told Henry and his family about the two women who did get some benefit from a similar operation. Uh, but, you know, he knew... He knew probably that it was experimental um, and and not you know tried and true. So mm-hmm. I think you know the seeds of of this uh, memory were planted before the operation. This mm-hmm. sense about the operation was were planted before, and I think also his altruism may have been um, mm-hmm. may have started before the operation. Because, you know, I, I don't know, I have no idea what, this, what Scoville said to Henry and his parents before mm-hmm. the operation. I have no idea what the consent process was. But in any case, he, he may have said, you know, this, what we learn from doing this operation on you and other people uh, will eventually benefit other, you know, patients in the future. And so he, you know, he hung his hat on that hope. And it really carried him through his life. Mm-hmm. And he certainly did. I mean, he, so much was learned about him and, uh, you know, in some ways a cautionary tale about these psychosurgeries and then also just how much he contributed. Um, Henry lived to his 80s. How did his memory change as he aged? Well, um, his, his amnesia over decades didn't change at all, uh, up to a point. And that was in uh, maybe around 2004, uh, it was clear that he was becoming demented. And we actually found small strokes scattered throughout his, the white matter of his brain uh, in MRI scans. And so these small strokes in various places, um, white matter and gray matter actually, uh, no doubt caused his, uh, his dementia. Now, he may have had another kind of dementia as well because demented patients often have more than one kind of dementia when you, go, when you examine their brain at autopsy. So it's possible that he had Alzheimer's plus vascular dementia uh, relating to the small strokes, or he might have had other, some other kind of dementia. And we will find that out uh, when uh, we, do, we examine the cells from his brain under a microscope uh, in the neuropathological examination. 
And tell us about that. The research on Henry is continuing after his death. And I thought it was really interesting to read about what happened to his brain after he died. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Um, well, uh, you know, Henry continues to make contributions to the science of memory. Uh, the night he died, um, a, uh, a hearse brought his body from the nursing home in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, uh, up to the Martinez, uh, Center for Biomedical Imaging at Mass General. And, uh, we scanned him for nine hours that night with his brain still inside his skull. It's called in situ scanning. The next morning, another hearse talk, took his body to the Mass General Morgue and um, Matthew Frosch carefully and skillfully per- performed the autopsy where he removed Henry's brain um, intact. Um, and then uh, right after that, his brain was put in a liquid preservative formaldehyde for 10 weeks, and then we scanned it again, uh, this time in a special container uh, made to hold his brain inside the scanner. And so uh, we, in this scan, in this second round of scanning, uh, we uh, we um, obtained very very high resolution data with a very powerful magnet, more powerful than is uh, used in clinical situations. So the, we now have these detailed MRI images, and they revealed uh, a few noteworthy structures that had survived the surgery and had been either undetected or difficult to discern with the MRI scans that we conducted during his life. And uh, so we're now writing up uh, these results from the MRI imaging. And, and the present and the, sorry, and these detailed uh, MRI images will tell us more about help us to make more accurate brain behavior correlations linking what he could and could not remember during life uh, to what was uh, preserved and removed in his brain because this is you know this is the real this is the real brain so we'll now know for sure so that's very exciting to be working on this mm-hmm. uh, on these con- this continuing research uh, with HM's brain he he donated his brain to MIT and Mass General in 1992. Uh, he signed a brain donation form, and so now we we have the wonderful opportunity to do. Um, you know, I think what what we'll find is it, it's hard to estimate, hard to guess how the many discoveries yeah. that will come out of his uh, of studying HM in the future. Again, his yeah, his uh, generosity to to research scientists is just amazing that it is people amazing. will continue to learn from him for years to come. Yeah, exactly. And his brain was sliced into 2,401 hair. Four, 2000. This was unusual because normally uh, when they do autopsies, uh, for example, in Alzheimer's disease, half might be frozen and half, one half used for one purpose and the other half used for a totally different purpose. And I was really adamant that Henry's brain not be cut in half, that we wanted to see the whole thing. So these are whole brain slices going from just behind his forehead, from the frontal lobes, slice by slice, all the way through the brain to the back, to the occipital lobes. Mm -hmm. So we have this just amazing tissue uh, which can be stained uh, to identify um, different diseases, and it can be examined under powerful microscopes to um, see what what cells remain, uh, what what the cellular uh, landscape is of his remaining brain, and also the white matter. The white matter are these are the telephone lines that connect uh, neurons to each other and groups of neurons all throughout the brain. So, for example, there is white matter that goes from the frontal lobes all the way down to the cerebellum and way in the back of the brain, and um, these are uh, these are very important for for all kinds of brain functions. And now we'll be able to look at, at the integrity of these these white matter tracks uh, throughout his brain. Well, we will all stay tuned to to learn more as as the research continues. 
And, you know, for listeners who are interested in this topic, I just really recommend reading the book because you go into so much um, more depth with, you know, the different aspects of his memory and all of the really interesting research that was done with him. Some of the, the tasks that you did with Henry were creative and interesting. So I just really recommend the book. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and so I guess we've probably taken up about enough of your time for today. And I just really, again, appreciate you doing the interview. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Yes, I can. Uh, but I want to add one thing, and that is oh, please. that there were in all uh, 122 researchers, uh, either in my lab or collaborating with my lab, who studied Henry. So uh, th uh, there were many, many people who had the opportunity to study him, and, of course, we're very grateful to him for that uh, because he really he, he revised, he taught us the, about the cognitive and neural organization of memory, and, and this was because of the, of the efforts of many, many scientists. Um, but uh, so what I'm doing now, as I said, I'm writing papers about the uh, MRI scans that we did, and and also there will be papers about uh, what we learned from the 2,401 slices. Um, I'm also writing papers and giving talks about my research on aging and aging-related degenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. So I'm I'm very busy. Sounds and, like and it. very happy. Great. Well, you've certainly had a really interesting career so far, and it continues. And um, I just want to thank you um, for writing this book and for all the wonderful research that you've done over the years. And and especially thank you for being on New Books in Psychology today. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you very much. It was fun talking with you. You too. Thank you. This is Debbie Sorensen. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Suzanne Corkin about her book, Permanent Present Tense. The Unforgettable Life of the Amnesic Patient, H.M. Thank you for listening to New Books in Psychology.